Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Professor David Murdoch about all the research that he's been doing into infectious diseases. But as well as that, we're also going to be talking to him about his time in Nepal, as well as the University of Otago in Christchurch. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation because we go deep in a lot of different areas and cover many, many different topics. If you do enjoy it, then consider checking out the more than 100 episodes which have come before, because what we're trying to do here is have a podcast which tells good stories about people and tries to convey what they're doing and why they're doing it. Now let's get into this interview with David. So it's a pleasure to welcome Professor David Murdoch, who's the Dean and Head of Campus of the University of Otago Christchurch. Thanks for joining me. Mm, thank you. Um, on this show, what we do is we talk, we talk quite a lot about purpose and why people do what they do. But in order to unpack and, and explore what you're involved in today, what I'd love to do is go right back to the beginning and learn a bit about where you're from. So do you mind just telling us a bit about your background and your childhood? Sure. Um, I was born in Dunedin um, and uh, spent the first five years of my life there. Mm. Um, my mother's from Dunedin. My father's from mid-Canterbury. Um, they met at Teachers College in Dunedin. Mm. And uh, and I came shortly afterwards. Um, and uh, at that time, at probably about age five or six, we moved to uh, to, to Christchurch. Mm-hmm. Uh, both my parents, parents were um, primary school teachers. Mm-hmm. My father Moved fairly rapidly to uh, a principal job in probably his late 20s and then to Teachers College. And so we actually followed his job to Christchurch, to Christchurch Teachers College. Right. Do you have any memories of that sort of before five years old in Dunedin as a, you yes. know, a really young person? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. And, and, and of course, it was a def- defining time. I mean, I know when I left. So, in fact, uh, any memories of the age before five were, were clearly from Dunedin and I, mm. I remember very much remember the house in, uh, in, uh, in North Dunedin that we were in um, and going to school and, and walking to school but it was very much of you know a, a just very early childhood memories and just that early time going to school and uh, yeah very positive time and yeah. uh, yes and it sounds like education was important to your family if both of your well, parents was, were teachers. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, both my parents were the first, on both of their sides, the first we know who actually had a tertiary education. Oh, okay. Both came from very working class backgrounds. Um, and so uh, Teachers College uh, and my father actually ended up doing getting a bachelor's degree and a master's degree all part time. Hmm. While he was teaching, or while he was at Teachers College, hmm. so, so what had caused them to be so into <laughs> education and, and studying? Do you think it was was their parents encouraging it, or? Oh, I, th- I think so. I think it was both Presbyterian backgrounds. I think there was a very strong work ethic that yep. was instilled into my three sisters and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, having said that, they were the first ever tertiary education. Mm. Um, their four children, you know, two are doctors and two are PhDs. You know, it's quite interesting seeing yeah. where that opportunity. So it was certainly the kind of 
work ethic, working hard, mm-hmm. um, and and being fiscally responsible was certainly very much part of mm. of our upbringing. Mm. Uh, very warm family upbringing. Um, remember, oh, I was just going to ask, just in terms of the fact that the four children went on to do mm. s- not just study but quite advanced study. What were some of the things growing up do you think that that shaped you both you and your siblings mm. <laughs> that that meant you were bent that way? There were fairly high expectations that we work hard and do well mm-hmm. um, in a very positive way mm-hmm. positive encouraging way doing your best was actually what was instilled in all of us I think mm-hmm. um, and obviously you know we all did reasonably well at school and there, thereafter but I think that was it it wasn't a mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't a strict upbringing. It mm-hmm. was just a very positive upbringing, and from a, a background of you know, take the advantages that that are you're faced with. If you have these opportunities, yeah. you really should take them. So th- I guess that was that was the background, really. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. It's just yeah. always interesting to trace through mm-hmm. in families, and you think about generations and what is it that passes. Because I love family history, so I know that my great grandfather loved to write. And I love to write. And I always wonder, you know, is there something that kind of passes through generations in that sort of same way mm. that's, um, you know, beyond just the genetics? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was that work ethic and taking the opportunities. Have huge encouragement from mm. all our grandparents, etc. you know, who all came from fairly, you know, working class backgrounds, but they all worked really hard. And that was... Mm immensely proud of all of their their grandkids and and their their kids and what they've done yeah that's great so paint a picture of you as a young like quite young you know primary school sort of Mm. early years what what did you enjoy doing in terms of you know sports or outdoors Mm. or reading or yeah paint a picture i i I was an, an incredibly shy kid right I wouldn't have, you know, probably said anything in, in class until quite late on. It was quite interesting, you know, given the very public type of role I have now. But um, uh, I love sport, um, and and in fact, that was, you know, I think as as a, a shy kid who quietly went about their way and, and did reasonably well academically, but then to see that you're actually quite good at sport, it was, and particularly football and tennis were the two that were kind of enduring. Mm-hmm. So they were a key part of of my upbringing, mm. um, but yes, and you know, very early on, just a love of outdoors. So in mm. fact, and, and have some very strong memories of key school trips to Arthur's Pass, for example, mm. and a very early love of mountains and bush, and and a lot of that um, again, parents' influence, and my father, who's initial uh, field was sort of geography social studies but had quite a strong science bent mm. and also an interest in 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 uh, botany as well as zoology so i mean we, we used to go on these fabulous field trips mm. as kids uh, out into the bush and he would be able to name every bird sound be able to identify every plant mm. you know so we would have uh, trips away to the west coast we'd be out in the middle of the night looking for whistling frogs and right. <laughs> you know those sort of activities which were fabulous I mean used to love them we didn't find I don't think we found a single whistling frog right. we found lots of other frogs <laughs> yeah but uh, those adventures uh, led to a very really love of tramping yeah. etc so, so you had a model right there yes of somebody who um, you know 
enjoyed education and that it translated Absolutely. into the real world of what can we discover around us. That's right. I yeah. mean, fabulous teachers. Yeah. You know, so, uh, no, absolutely. And that, that the influence has been, you know, it's been profound, really, in mm. that regard. Mm. That's great. Um, and your father, you said he was working as a principal during that time? Is that, did that well, continue? Well, actually, he, he was briefly a principal that, but in Dunedin, but then he, he, his career, most of his career was actually at Teachers College, most in Christchurch. Mm. So he, he was, for us part of the time, the head of education department, and so quite a senior figure in the school uh then it was you know teachers college and now part of the university of canterbury right yeah and just taking us through into your high school years like did Mm. you know did you have a bent towards the sciences at that time did you enjoy it or what yeah again what type of things really no definitely biology sciences anthropology that was actually the kind of areas that i was mostly interested good at maths but that was not really an interest it was really yeah you know the biological sciences so i don't think there was much doubt i was heading in that sort of direction and, mm-hmm. and a relatively early interest in in medicine mm-hmm. so that was probably halfway through high school i guess mm-hmm. that was what i decided i wanted to do right wow yeah. so you would have been what sort of 16 or something Possibly a like bit that. earlier than that oh, okay and and I have one, one, one older sister, she's only a year older than me, and she actually also went to medicine. So in a way, mm. you, know, I was, you know, she was one year ahead of, of me through that journey, but I right. think it was an independent, you know, for both of us. It was just an interest that, that yeah. developed. And the interest in medicine, like, w- did you have a, a model or somebody that you were looking to? or I don't how did so. that How did that come about? Uh, or what was the origin? I really don't... Well, I, I'm not sure. I think the biological sciences... But, but no, I don't think there were any any particular role models. Mm. Um, and I guess, it, you know, there was always, um, you know, among the, you know, the, the, it was an aspiration, I guess, among those interested in sciences. It, probably it was it was what was encouraged. People Something think to about aim for. Medicine, yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah. which, you know, probably overemphasized still in the way that, you know, there are other opportunities in sure. the biological sciences, but medicine was always, well, that was the aspiration. So I guess it was encouraged. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So you get to the end of high school, and, mm. um, yeah, what happened next? Well, I went to medical school. So, mm. you know, that's, that's six years. Um, Where were you based? Was that? Well, that was, uh, I, I spent one, at that time you could do the first year at any university and then entered medical school in your second year so i spent one year at the university of canterbury yep uh then the next two years in dunedin so i went through otago medical school Mm -hmm. and then um the way it works the final three years came back here to the to the campus i'm I'm now on so that the i was a student here for the final three years right um so you're fairly that was fairly once there it's it's six years um uninterrupted uh and then and what were your memories of that time? Um, I, mean, I I thrived at university. I think, and compared to the, I, I can remember at high school toward the end, um, you know, a traditional boys' high school. Mm-hmm. I, I felt I'd outgrown it by about sixteen, I think, and right. found that it wasn't a great. Um, you know, it was more focused on tradition rather than, uh, you know good education and it was reliant on its reputation you know i think more than 
you know, not trying to be too critical, but then going to a university environment, which was, you know, kind of uh, yeah, much more encouraging. Level. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so um, it, medical school presents challenges to anyone, any student. And yeah. so I went through those, the ups and downs of, um, of dealing with some, you know, fairly confronting situations mm. as a young person, right, mm. from, you know, the you know, dissecting cadavers when you're age 18, 19, through to, you know, some fairly personal tragedies, meeting patients with personal tragedies when you're still relatively young. And, mm. you know, you kind of forget that you're only 23, 24 when you graduate. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't mm. it? I interviewed someone else um, named Franco Budo, and she's gone on, to get her PhD, but in political science and, mm. and things. But she had originally wanted to be a medical doctor. So she started down that down that path um, and then realized that it was a difficult yeah. <laughs> a difficult road because she, she was meeting people and it was obviously a hugely difficult time in some people's lives if they've been given a diagnosis and things. So she said, I actually don't want to do this. I'm, yeah going to head another path and it's when it's a six-year program as we have in new zealand yeah um, you know to, to make a change part way through is, is often not easy yeah yeah for sure so at that time like what you've ended up sort of mm. gravitating towards was it starting to become evident then at, at age you know 22 23 like did you because medicine there's so many potential areas mm. isn't there that's the thing is it's the, the right. human body is complicated um but did you know sort of as yes. you were doing it um well you, you it becomes clear there, there are often some early decisions often the earlier one is are you interested in being a surgeon or not that seems to come up fairly early but um right. i didn't have it although i enjoyed surgery that wasn't where, where i was destined mm. um but as a young doctor you get exposed to a wide variety and i think that's a key time in terms of really refining where you want to go and i and mm. the other the other key you know i guess another influence we we still the two medical schools in new zealand as many other medical schools around the world have a an elective period in the final year we we mm. we fight to preserve it we think it's an absolute treasure it's a th it's a quarter of the year 3 months mm. where at, where students have the opportunity to basically go anywhere in the world they range it with, you know it has to be related to medicine but mm. it's a real chance just to, at the very end of the training to do something different um that was actually my first time overseas age 22 right and um my girlfriend now my wife and i went to south asia so we spent half of it in india and half in nepal right and um you know really uh for us uh so coming from white middle-class New Zealand yeah. that's pretty contrasting places to absolutely to up, right? yeah yeah and and it's not unusual for our students to do do that now mm. I guess more would have traveled before than uh, back when I did it but um, you mm. know it was it was you know, very you know it was totally eye-opening experience but a wonderful experience and I guess the the reason we went to that part of the world um, my wife had her father was was born and raised in India until he was about Hmm. 15, 16, so there was a connection. Not that we actually spent our elective where he lived. Right. We did visit there, but um, that was a natural focus, maybe go to South Asia. Hmm. My interest in mountains, I guess, was what, what, and the New Zealand, I guess the New Zealand artillery connection with the Himalaya and, and Nepal. Yeah. Um, 
piqued my interest and and so that was why we spent i guess we went there for half our time but that that led to a you know a i guess we can talk about that whenever you feel but it just just that was uh in a very long-standing relationship we've had with that country yeah well let's dive into there because Mm. i am really interested in it um and we can circle back to your career and Mm. and what you've specialized in in that in medicine but um yeah what were you what were your initial impressions when you got to these countries like uh, was it um so contrasting or you know Mm. how how was it well, I, mean, I think uh, India is a challenge to all your senses. I mean, it's it's a wonderful explosion of <laughs> of just life. And um, Nepal, it was you know again a um, completely different cultures within a, a fabulous mountain environment. I mean, we just mm. just opened our eyes to many things, including you know obviously the you know the issues of of uh, a very low income country and and a completely different health system and health priorities and right. uh so uh again I, you know and, and I've, i reflect on my role as dean when i'm talking to our students about their electives i'm much more interested that they go somewhere that is is different mm-hmm. is exposing them to quite uh, to both the medicine and cultures and an environment that's quite different rather than necessarily the actual technical medical component yeah. that they you know they're gaining something from it. it's actually that whole experience and we certainly had that yeah so again it was just just opening ours to a new world and mm-hmm. and uh so how would you say you were different when you were arriving in nepal and when yeah. you were leaving what, what were some of the initial things that were shaping you into who you've become oh gosh um i guess it was an awareness of of a, of a you know a, a pr- first-hand awareness of a of a part of the world I just hadn't experienced and we, we were planning our next trip back before we left you know right. it was that sort of it was a very positive experience but um does that come back to the not only the mountains and things I'm presuming it's the people and the culture as well yeah, right absolutely. so what was it that was so attractive or that you you enjoyed there um and you're absolutely right I mean that's actually the major reason I think is, is mm. that invite and uh um, well, it's, I mean, of course, be careful making generalizations, but, you know, I think it's a, it's a country, I mean, we've always very um, appreciated the, the mix of cultures and the very warmth, warm way that um, people are received. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, later on, we had a, developed a very, I mean, I'm jumping a little bit, but when, later on, we had a very personal a relationship with a Sherpa community, so I mean that where we lived for two years. So okay, uh, and that's jumping ahead a few years. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, but yes, I mean it, it, just that personal contact, the, the the warmth of the of people, the variety of people, the yeah. interesting mix of cultures. I mean, it's it's an amazing mix of cultures and religions. Yeah, um, the diversity was is astonishing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So you come back from there, mm. back to New Zealand. Um, yeah, what was that like? Was there any reverse culture shock? Of not at that time. I can talk about later with other experiences, but that was, uh, yeah. you know, that was coming back, finishing off medical school. The excitement of being a young doctor and out in the workforce finally. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I was fortunate. We were fortunate. We were still at the time when we left debt free. You know, we were had. Mm. Um, we didn't have student loans. We we were actually had a small bursary to go to university. We could 
work in the holidays and that would keep us going, never having to borrow off parents or borrow off anyone else. And so mm-hmm. there was still that strong tradition of the overseas experience. So literally, you know, a year after graduating, when, when all our class were, were finally registered after our first year in practice, um, over half were overseas traveling for a year or so. And, we did, and my mm. wife and I did that. Mm-hmm. So we... Took a slow trip across to UK where we did locums, but on that slow trip we went back to Nepal and India, mm-hmm. and travelled around more and uh, trekked in the mountains of Nepal, and then had an opportunity to return back while we were, we were based in the UK, mm-hmm. just doing locum jobs. We went back and worked at a high altitude aid post in Nepal, so mm-hmm. it was through a connection we'd made through a previous visit, mm-hmm. and that was a as I say three month period mm-hmm. um, st- at a altitude of 4,300 meters in the Mount Everest region. Basically there to educate trekkers about the dangers of altitude sickness. Okay. It's focused on the the foreign, the tourist population at that time. Yeah. And so your eyes have been open to the, you know, the wide, wide world. (laughs) In Nepal, you've been living in the UK. Was there a temptation to stay in the UK and sort of settle down there and travel from there? Like... The fact that you came back to New Zealand, what was mm. driving that? We came back after 18 months, you mm. know, or over 18 months. So, in fact, we did use the UK as a base. And yeah. I think, you know, certainly I can remember we talked about doing some training in the UK rather than just the locum. So I don't think we're looking at long term, but at least for a period of time, which, mm. in fact, we didn't do in the end. Yeah, It was very much to fund the travel and the experience and the living in Europe and traveling yeah. to Asia. So... Mm. Uh, but we did return, I think, really with a better idea about the kind of areas we want to s- specialise in. My mm-hmm. wife then trained as a GP and then subsequently as a public health physician. Um, I had an interest in internal medicine and infectious diseases. And I think that the, the period of time spent in in South Asia where infectious diseases mm-hmm. are very prominent certainly had an influence mm-hmm. um, and so we did return at that time and embark. So we, we, no reverse culture shock at that time. We were back. Um, you know, we had a, a fabulous 18 months to two years traveling. It was time just to be a bit more responsible and, <laughs> and settle down, <laughs> finish our training, um, yeah. and uh, which we did. And, and well, actually, we interrupted it again, which, which again is unusual. I think that overseas experience is very typical. Right. You will find that most will come back and then just completely training. That may involve some travel, but we actually, um, because of that Nepal connection and the New Zealand Nepal connection, and people here were, and particularly related to the Himalayan Trust, which is Ed Hillary's mm-hmm. uh, uh, organization that had built schools and, and a couple of hospitals in, in Nepal. Mm. And that community in New Zealand and the small New Zealand community, and thus sort of being known to some of that people who had been involved, we were encouraged to think about going back because right. of the, the Hillary Hospital at Kunde, which was uh, built in 1966 or started in 1966 and had been staffed uh, at least initially by volunteer doctors from New Zealand and then some from Canada. Mm-hmm. It's now, as it has been for many years, run by, by uh, local doctors. Hmm. But at that time, there were looking at doctors and on two-year terms. So we were encouraged to think about it. Okay. Knowing that we'd been there, we'd actually yeah. worked for a little bit of time. And so we 
we decided to do it. And in fact, we the, the interview we didn't know was happening. We were, it was uh, the, I think the annual general meeting was in Christchurch of the Trust, and Ed Hillary was down, and we were asked us to come along and hear about it. And right. the medical subcommittee met with us, and they said, "Well, why do you, <laughs> why do you want to go? To, you know, why why do you want to go to Nepal?" And we thought we looked at each other and. We hadn't talked, about, hadn't made a decision, but we thought, right, let's go for it. So right. just, and um, so, so you communicated by eyes. We saying, did. We this did. Is it. We did. Sitting it. on so, in That's the floor funny. on somebody's lounge for an unofficial interview, and um, <laughs> so we did. We we said, well, this is a, an amazing opportunity. So yep. we managed to get leave, having passed some of our exams. We decided to take last for two years leave in mm-hmm. the middle of it, uh, specialist exams, uh, specialist training. Yeah. And um, had the most amazing experience of a life. Um, mm. So we, you know, that was so. We're, we're looking then at that stage. We, we well, we both turned thirty over there, so we were late twenties when we went over there as uh, yeah. youngish doctors, nearly finishing their uh, specialist training, and in a place that is uh, a village of three hundred and fifty people. Right. Seven days walk to the nearest road. Wow. Uh, no electricity. Um, the only communication was short wave, wave radio, BBC, and uh, if we needed to get a message out to Kathmandu, it was a, a, a run of half an hour to the police or the National Park headquarters to see if they could radio out, and a mail runner that came every two weeks if we were lucky. Wow. And among the most amazing mountain scenery in the world, among one of the highest hospitals in the world, mm-hmm. and, um, and we weren't paid two years. Best wow. job in the world, and knew it at the time. And it was, you know, as as an experience, it was it was so formative in mm. terms of. Uh, so, what were some of the key things that you look back on as being that that was the formative part of it? Like, is it, is it, it must be hard to identify because it, mm. it would, it's so different to anything in our modern world, right? You know, mm. like to be seven days walk. Yes, away. I mean there was an airstrip closer, but it was not, you know, necessarily. Consi- you know, it was there were regular flights, but they were, pretty, you know, yeah. ma- weather dependent in a very dodgy airstrip. But yes, uh, um, the isolation, which wouldn't suit everyone, was just wonderful. I mean, the uh, learning to be self-sufficient, mm-hmm. um, learning to be prepared to deal with anything that came across, you know, because we were we were it as far as mm. as medics. Medics, yeah. Um, learning to be resourceful, uh, very much, and they appointed the trust would appoint couples, and I can see why. I mean, you you really did rely a lot on each other, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, just the absolute privilege of being embedded within a another community. So mm-hmm. you know, this was a a Sherpa community. Now Sherpa is often used as a kind of occupation, but it actually it's an ethnic group. It's a, right. Uh, of Tibetan ethnic origin who happened to come south of the hmm. Himalaya a few hundred years ago, so very much uh, uh, very you know, Tibetan origin, Tibetan Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So to be welcomed into a community, a very, you know, very small, tight community, mm. uh, wasn't just an absolute privilege, and to be p- part of that. And although, you know, you. you I can say the word embed. I, you know, you always it's not totally embedded. I'm not, you know, that's a step too far. But as much mm. as you could be, mm. we were in that community to be. I guess um, you know, you were you were the doctor. There was a certain position you had in that community. Yeah, 
And so we were involved in all sorts of things that we might not have expected to be involved in, but it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned something when you first started talking, you said we had to learn to be self-sufficient. Hmm. I'm just wondering if you could unpack that for us a little bit more. The, o- the only reason I'm asking is that in our modern world, you know, right here on the, on the table, I've got my phone. Hmm. And, um, and I think in our culture, it's all about instant results hmm. and, and, you know, Google and find this and that. And um, just talk us through what you mean by that sort of learning to be self-sufficient. I guess it was just to be resourceful. And I suppose I say learning. I mean, we just had to do it. Yeah. So we were just, it was just a bit of part of the fun, really. If you needed something, you made it, or you found someone to do it, or, or you know, or you found alternatives, way, ways to do it, or you learned actually to have different expectations. Mm-hmm. And that included throughout the medical practice. And so, you know, it was our, you know, for example, our health workers who we learned so much of just, you know, saying, look, actually, this is time not to treat this patient. They've defaulted from their medication so long. Actually, it's more of a danger for their tuberculosis that we, you know, we, mm-hmm. you know, or pulling out, or uh, or actually understanding that the local healers, you, you, how you had to work with them and the monks in terms of, mm. how, you know, understanding different models of health and wellness and mm. treatment. Um, so, more than just. Um treating the physical oh, um, yes. yeah. outworkings but it sounds like at the, in that community there was a deeper level of understanding you know going to, towards the spiritual and the oh very much yeah and we, we, we were just one one part in a yeah. way of it and so you know i can hear you know, plenty of stories and illustrations but you know when i guess we were asked one night to to a neighbor's house because the the five six-year-old was unconscious and we went there, and um, you know he was basically sound. He was drunk. He was sound asleep. He had been fe- he had been his grandmother had been feeding him the local brew, and and he in fact he he was you know. And we we kind of knew this sort of thing happened, so we gave some advice about um, yeah. you know that he actually needed to sleep this often just to look after him while that was happening. And they thanked us and gave us a cup of tea, and and uh, you know very polite. But then. They called down the monks after us, and all night they were on beating the drums right. all night. And uh, we know, you know, we know who was attributed with him being better the following morning. It right. wasn't what we did, yeah. but in terms of just, and that's just an illustration of having to kind of adjust to the, you know, to the different uh, modalities. But we, we were only one of many different healing healers that were, or healers different options in the health space i guess you would yeah say. right <laughs> but quite different to the western approach yes sort yes. of um well here's the diagnosis that's and, right and that's here's, right here's the, was... here's the pills to take and mm. yeah oh that's mm. fascinating so you come back to new zealand mm. and then you finished off your study eventually <laughs> yes like and, and, and and it you know the, 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 the coming back the re-entry was really hard was I mean, it you okay know, so, so this is the reverse yeah, culture the reverse shock, culture shock yeah. um well, and, I th- and I think it was coming back into a, you know, into the medical hierarchy to finish training, and it just happened to be a really busy time. The kind of jobs we had for a start, and there right. were some, you know, events along that way that were a bit even tougher than mm. you know, unexpected events. That just made it hard. And mm. and for me, actually, what what. Um, uh, was a bit of a saving grace actually was the fact that. I went. I came back for three months, 
we came back for three months and then I went away to the UK for three months to a tropical, a diploma in tropical medicine at Liverpool. And that was mm. kind of, I had, a, you know, three months of, you know, not adjusting back and then to go away and, and uh, again to a, a different environment where there were a lot of people from all, all parts of the world and I was a bit more connecting with what we did in Nepal. Then right. came back and really started uh, the specific training in, in infectious diseases. In fact, I was in infectious diseases, there are two, two parts. There's the um, patient care side, which was what I was initially focused on, but then also there's the laboratory side as a clinical microbiologist, so I ended up training in both, mm. so doing the, the patient care and the lab part. But then as a, in, my profe- in my career, cons- uh, specialist career had been mainly on the, uh, the lab side. But, um, but yes, that was, done in, that was started in Christchurch, so several years. Mm-hmm. So that was having children, two daughters, mm-hmm. um, finishing the training, uh, me in the clinical microbiology, infectious diseases, my wife, um, general practice, and then shifting to public health. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, so in, in medicine, um, in countries of the British Commonwealth or the Commonwealth typically have very protracted um, specialist training. And uh, it, it finished. we finished by going to the US. So we spent two years um, hmm. very end of the specialist training in, in North Carolina at Duke oh, University. Right. So, you know, talking about contrast, so on one hand we were, you know, two years in, as very rural general practitioners in Nepal and then... Two years, well, certainly I was working at, at Duke Hospital, which was ab- ab- absolutely, <laughs> you know, and, and the best and the worst of medicine, to be honest, but it yeah. had the most sophisticated, uh, uh, you know, medical facilities and uh, available. And But also, it's I think I thrived in that environment. And I think a real, again, living in the US, I think that mm-hmm. was a... Um, uh, it was a wonderful experience with two young kids uh, mm-hmm. and I think an environment that brought out the best in people. I think in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, there is a lot of tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand and uh, here was a situation where people were very good at telling you were doing a good job and very encouraging and uh, mm-hmm. Kiwis tend to thrive, certainly in the in health professionals when they go there yeah so was that um learning more about infectious diseases was and totally clinical microbiology was, was that, both i yeah. had a year of a okay. year of each and, a, and a, a absolutely focused on infectious diseases clinical microbiology yeah so i'd love to understand more about those topics mm. um how do i ask the right question here <laughs> right <laughs> just because like when you think about infectious diseases in my mm. mind it's absolutely fascinating to me, the history. When you go back mm. 100 years ago or 200 years ago, these were just completely not known what was causing yeah. this, you know? And, and you think about how much we've advanced, you know, when you look at infectious diseases and then hundreds of years ago versus today. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's an amazing thing how far we've come. So what, what area were you, um, were you looking into? Yes, well, the, the training is very broad, so it's pretty much covering, you know, as a, as a practicing clinician in New Zealand, you're, you're expected to have very broad knowledge. So it, it's, mm. and, and as a specialty goes, it would have been years ago thought to be 
they're sort of exotic and fiction, you know, or, or ones that are now seen as exotic, which of course weren't. Right. You know, so, you know, tuberculosis, typhoid, uh, malaria, obviously in parts of the tropics. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, um, you know, a lot of the infectious disease we're dealing with, are, you know, pneumonia, meningitis, mm. uh, abscesses, skin and soft tissue infections. You know, these are the these are the bread and butter respiratory infections. Um, gastroenteritis mm-hmm. so historically for a lot of these were covered under other part other specialties so in fact you know uh, uh, you know for example uh, the chest physicians would look after pneumonia infection of the lungs and right. gastroenterologists would look after gastroenteritis and so it emerged as actually it's important as a specialty in itself, because there are mm. some peculiarities, and of course, diseases like HIV mm-hmm. infection mm-hmm. really took the specialty a lot uh, another step. Because mm. here was a really a disease entity that affected not didn't affect a particular organ of the body mm. for that specialist to, to sort of to grasp. It was one that was uh, was not organ specific, and it, and mm. it, you know it was suddenly a very important disease. So that. And so that advanced the specialty in a lot of the world. I see. Yeah. Um, so rather than focusing on the organ or the part of the body that right. was affected, it was a, a bigger label. It involved multiple organs. Yeah. You know, it wasn't related to one. But then, and so the specialty grew in parts of the US. It was very, very broad. And in fact, in Australasia, we've tended to follow the US model. In the UK, it's been more exotic infections. Now they're catching up with the rest of us in terms of that perspective. Yeah. Um, and of course, with the advent of antibiotics, you know, around mm-hmm. the first world, or the second world war, rather, you know, there was uh, that made such an impact that even in the 1960s, there was expectations that in fact we're going to get rid of, especially mm-hmm. with vaccines and antibiotics, we were going to get rid of infectious diseases. And there's a famous statement from the Surgeon General of the U.S. in the 1960s saying, you know, the era of infectious diseases is nearly over. I mean, famous. <laughs> Statement, words, right? That's right. <laughs> and it's certainly been proved wrong because, of course, uh, we haven't antibiotic resistance. Is, we can't, we're struggling to catch up with that. Yeah. New, new diseases, uh, infections will emerge or they change. Yeah. So we don't think we're going to be without a job. Right. <laughs> Next one. <laughs> um, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and in fact, you asked about the particular area. Well, certainly in practice, we're kind of meant to be broad. But in terms of academically, the interests mm. I've had are particularly related to uh, respiratory infections, pneumonia. Okay. A lot of infe- uh, vaccine-preventable infections. And, uh, and often a lot of that work has been um, in developing countries. Mm. Uh, including Nepal. So, in fact, I, I continue to have collaborations and, and work there. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So you mentioned antibiotics and mm. things. I, I just love to understand that a little bit from your perspective. Um, you know, I guess what's going on when people are having antibiotics and and the impact that has on the body um, as opposed to not having antibiotics, mm. like, it, 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 is it a good thing to use them or only in the last resort? That's my question. <laughs> no, I mean, well, there's, as you can imagine, there, there, there are multiple answers, but but it's um, they're definitely a good thing. Um, yeah. There are some diseases. I mean, the, basically, what they do. I mean, you, your body will respond to infections, mm. and um, what antibiotics do is just help your own immune system fight an infection. Mm. Is to help them along the way. They're only useful 
for certain, we don't have antibiotics for every single infection, so particularly a lot of the viruses we do not have right. antibiotics, but it's mainly we're referring to the bacterial infections. Mm. And um, so we, they're certainly useful. They certainly are life-saving. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're certainly very important. But what the, the issue is of the development of resistance, and so actually they can be their own worst enemy if they are used injudiciously. So, I see. Um, and so the, unpack that for me. What do you mean? <clears throat> How does that work? Because uh, it basically antibiotic resistance occurs when organisms, bacteria, mm-hmm. say, are exposed to antibiotics. There will be some because they multiply very quickly. Yes. They can develop mutations. They can adjust. And so if they're exposed to these antibiotics, they can um, develop the resistance. So the more they're exposed, what you want to do is, is kill them. Basically, right, you treat and kill them. So the ones that are, you don't want any left that might have developed some resistance who, who might then go on and transmit to other people or cause other infections. Right. So that's it very crudely. Also some, um, uh, and we know that we have different types of antibiotics. Some are, I guess you could say, very targeted to certain, say, mm-hmm. organisms. Mm-hmm. There are some that we call broad spectrum where they will treat a wide variety so the broad spectrum ones, um, they have their role, but also potentially they're going to, there's going to be collateral damage where they will kill some, maybe some, they will target some, be active against some of the more right. health, uh, more the positive, positive ones. Yeah. Yes. They're also the ones that are more likely to, the use of more broad spectrum antibiotics is more likely to promote resistance as well. I see. So the the general principles are, yes, not necessarily last resort to use antibiotics, but we want to know we're using them for good reason. Yeah. Uh, And where possible, as targeted, as narrow a spectrum of antibiotic um, as we can. Mm. Often we're not in that situation of knowing exactly which um, organism we're treating. So for pneumonia, for example, Mm. there's a whole variety of bacteria that can cause pneumonia. The most common one, if we know it's that type, we can have a very specific, a very targeted antibiotic treatment. But we don't often know that when somebody comes in the door very sick with pneumonia. So we'll often treat them quite broadly for a start. Yeah. And then I guess the the opposite of antibiotics is probiotics, mm. right? So mm. I guess because that's the danger of antibiotics is that you're killing off certain right. positive things. So that's right. having the... the uh, this is all the... Um, this is the talk that non-doctors talk, you see, because <laughs> I've got young kids. Yes. So yes. when sometimes we do have to go on to antibiotics and then we try to get some sort of a probiotic mm. yogurt or something to hopefully get some good stuff That's back. That's right. Am I going down the wrong path? Though? No, you're, you're not. And it's a really interesting area. Uh, and it's fair to say that there's still a lot we don't know. Right. Still, And there's also a lot that has been um, that is not evidence-based. So it's actually getting that... There, uh, the middle road, good Buddhist middle road, you know, which is actually what is what is the evidence, and certainly there's mm. a lot of money being made out of probiotics, right, uh, for reasons that probably don't have uh, a very strong evidence base behind it. But having said that, there, you know, there is a lot about we, we are learning about what we now call the kind of microbiome. This is your your normal healthy, yeah. Uh, micro you know, bacteria um, that are in your body that are part of you that are part of your uh, you healthy you keep you healthy yeah, and, and yeah. when that's disturbed 
we're finding more and more that there are um, there are consequences. There are consequences. So, what's my healthy? Assuming I've got a healthy microbiome, mm. <laughs> what does that look like? You know, in, in how? Yeah, I won't be able to ask this question right. But what are we talking about? Like when we're talking about yeah, microbiome, we're talking about a, a whole variety, and it's a vast variety mm. of particularly bacteria. Right. And they just happily live with you. Mm. Kind of like, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because mm. bacteria in all of our minds, the moment you say the word bacteria, you think negative. You think, mm. quick, mm. get the get the towel and we'll wipe away right. the, the dirty bacteria. But what you're actually saying is that there's the, you know, the flip side is that there's but, the That's right. And it's typically in your gut. I yeah. mean, that's where a lot of it is. It's also in your upper airways, in your nose, in your mouth. Mm. I mean, this is it's healthy. Mm. Um, and... Uh, but and and typically the infections come the ones that we're worried about mm-hmm. that we we need to treat are when either one of those the healthy part of your normal microbiome gets in the wrong place right or there's a strain of it that is more likely to cause disease rather than just happily sit and be an innocent bystander right I see or the other infections are ones which are not part of your normal microbiome something completely new that shouldn't be there I see you know yeah. so. You know, in your case, in pneumonia would be Legionnaires' disease, which is due to a, a particular bacteria that is in water and in soil, and and if it gets in the wrong place in the human body, it can cause pneumonia. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's such a fascinating area mm. to specialize in. My own personal connection with it is that my great great grandfather was involved in the Panama Canal. Oh, so, right. Um, you know, but he was involved in the French endeavors to build the Panama Canal. So this is. 1890 something you know Mm. and of course they were not successful and part of the reason uh, there were probably many reasons but part of the reason is that people kept dying and they were getting these diseases and um and then you know at the turn of the century they the basically the americans came in and started building and um getting rid of the pools of water where the mosquitoes were absolutely you know um so it was a yeah, quite fascinating. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And malaria and yellow fever, and I mean yeah. these were, and and you know there are many examples of where history has been altered by the you know being you know being governed. Yeah. Well, see, that's that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? Because when I look at, or, or you know, look back at history and how it panned out, and think about South America, the populations that were there, you know, the Mayans, for example, mm. that they were so devastated by these diseases that were brought in from from the old world to the new world, you know, if what if they had had immunity or if they hadn't been as affected, we'd probably live in quite a different world today, wouldn't we, if if so many vast millions of people hadn't died, if it had gone the other way, for example. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, South America is a really good example. I mean, mm. there's disease like yellow fever and malaria probably brought across with the slave trade from right. Africa. You know, so that you can just the, the changes um, that have been made because of those diseases in those communities. Yeah, um, are huge. Yeah, that's great. So um, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you're doing today, mm. and um, in particular, what's going on. You know, right now <laughs> here, because mm. um, we're we're chatting in Christchurch. Um, what's your sort of day to day role? Because I know you're still doing the clinical microbiology mm. as well, right? So you've got a few hats, but. Um, tell us a little bit about, yeah, just maybe about the University of Otago and what's going on here. Mm. Well, I, nearly three years I I became dean and head of the Christchurch campus. So mm-hmm. from being a um, 
you know, predominantly, it's been a lot of time. I mean, I've been an academic. I have you know, probably for 16 years now in Christchurch, and uh, changing from a role which was where a lot of time was spent as the normal academic pursuits of teaching and, and research to one that was mainly one of leadership mm-hmm. and uh, and managing the camp, effectively the, the chief executive of our campus in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. So the roles changed, uh, obviously quite a, uh, a different role, struggling but keen to maintain my credibility as an academic with uh, right. both the, and, and the clinical work. So I still do some work for the district health board, mm-hmm. uh, still keep, research going but increasingly difficult you know challenging but still important yeah but most of the role is with uh, leading the campus and mm. and here and and that's um you know we have a a reasonable probably a footprint that surprises people we mm. have uh so we're part of university of otago mm-hmm. we're about a thousand students mm. um and 300 350 staff and it was pointed out to me that that ma- that means that the University of Otago is one of Christchurch's biggest employers. So it's right. Um, so we're and based mainly on the, on the campus at, at Christchurch Hospital. So okay, for us it's um, you know we we have we are totally health based campus at the moment. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, with a very we're obviously training health professionals. Um, a third of our students are medical students. That's a major part of our program. Mm-hmm. Uh, very strong research groups um, and you know after the, the Christchurch earthquakes we've we're very much part of that uh, you know to, the development of a health precinct with all our mm-hmm. other health partners in Christchurch to make this a, an amazing place to for health education and research within a very integrated health system mm-hmm. uh, so which is really really exciting I mean the you know, opportunity for Christchurch is huge mm-hmm. And uh, on top of that, we have just had, you know, we, we are building a new building, which is actually the University of Otago's biggest building project to date. That's not, oh, in, wow. not, in, it's not in Dunedin. So this is really big, you know, fabulous news. And so for me, it's learning how you build a big building, <laughs> which, of course, <laughs> I'm very well trained for that. And so that's, that's, been, that's been fun. But, yeah, uh, I'm sure. You know, yeah. that's, that's a huge part of what I do. So, Oh, that's great. Well, it's good to have diversity, and you've had that absolutely, in your career. Absolutely. So, and what's the link back uh, in terms of, I guess, with University of Otago, mm. which is obviously based in Dunedin, and then what's going on here? Like, do, are students going back and forth, or is it? how yeah. does that work? Why out? do we exist, I guess? Is what, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically, I mean, it, it's um, with a... The medical school there was only the population of Dunedin right where we were based is um, wasn't re- it was a realize realization in the 1960s that um, probably didn't have the population to give the experience to the whole cohort of, of, of medical students I see. and so uh, our campus was built in the early 70s uh, very closely followed by a very similar campus in Wellington mm-hmm. And the and the reason we exist is is really around that clinical exposure f- uh, f- for medical students. So uh, th- the six year medical program, the first three years are in Dunedin. I see. The final three years are split three ways: a third of the students stay in Dunedin, a third come to Christchurch, a third come go to Wellington. Mm. We've grown since that time, from when we were just solely based around that third of the class, and mm-hmm. now we have. Uh, programs in, in, in nursing and psychological medicine. We have about 100 PhD students and very strong research programs. So we've, we've grown 
um, considerably. Mm. And in Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin, is there, like, if you're a student, would there be one city you'd want to go to to specialize in a particular area, or is it pretty much the same across the Well, the, the medical training years? is the same, and yeah. we, we try as much as we can to align it. In fact, we do pretty well. Mm. And, and although everyone asks us all the time, how do we, how do we you know, operate in, over three campuses, we do amazingly well, I think, mm. and, and function, and the university is very good at as best it can at, at making us all feel like we're part of the you know the one entity which we are yeah, um, yeah. the specialization occurs after medical school so right. there are certainly parts of New Zealand where is uh, and that's trained outside the university system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are certainly places where people prefer to go to get a certain mm-hmm. specialty so just tell us a little bit more then um, about some of the other activities beyond the medical students and what they're doing mm-hmm. you said there were PhD students yes. researching so is that across the full spectrum of different areas or yes all in health at the moment we're we're all health-based but yes it would range including some you know fundamental scientists we have a lot of lab laboratory-based scientists very very good uh very strong on that area public health psychological Mm -hmm. medicine so range full range from public health projects clinical projects right through to very much more basic science in the lab Mm mm-hmm and the building project that you mentioned, what's what will that building be used mm. for going forward? Yeah, I mean we're so we need it because we're so constrained. We haven't had an increase in uh, in new buildings really since the beginning. So we need it to house. It's going to house all our laboratories. We're going to move them all into there. Mm-hmm. Some of our clinical research facilities, um, and and one or two departments, and and some external partners as well. Um, radiology mm-hmm. unit and and. Uh, and the uh, a brain research institute as well. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a, um, a very close to our current um, building, which we will hopefully will be able to renovate as a stage two, uh, both within the the health precinct campus uh, mm-hmm. right by Christchurch Hospital. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. And I'm just looking, um, just thinking about other things that you're involved in. Can you tell us about the One Health Aotearoa? Mm. Like, what, what's going on there? <laughs> right, good question. Well, um, One Health is, is a term that has got into uh, sort of popular use recently in terms of it's really initiated largely by vet, vets, actually. The idea that uh, people in human health and veterinary health and environmental health should be working more closely together. Mm. Um, it, it's it, when you think about it, it's a no-brainer, really. But um, that idea that we should all be working very closely, and in my field of infectious disease, it's really obviously you know, an obvious thing we should be doing. Yeah. So um, we have uh, work. Uh, we have been working with the veterinary school in, at Massey, which is our only veterinary school in the country, and a number of other partners to re- to form this alliance called One Health Aotearoa, which is really trying to do that, bring together a broad range of uh, of researchers based around research, but but really with a focus on on you know influencing policy and advocacy, mm-hmm. but uh, really to um, to focus on infectious diseases and how better we can tackle some of them. And mm-hmm. you know there are you know I guess a, a examples of um, you know a good example of this would have been the outbreak of gastroenteritis in Havelock North a few years ago, mm-hmm. which was due to contamination from sheep feces of the water in that mm-hmm. area so here we've got an example of a gastroenteritis that uh, you know human infection 
with a clear um, link to farming mm-hmm. and and the environment. So here's a situation where people from all of those backgrounds got together, mm-hmm. identify what the problem was, and solved it. So that's that's the kind of so it's a collaboration absolutely. across absolutely. disciplines and people. And That's right. Yeah. And in many ways, it's, this is what we should be doing anyway. But often, and particularly as academics or, or researchers, we, we, we can sometimes get a bit siloed. Sure. So yeah. part of that idea is actually just get, enabling people to be exposed to other perspectives. And another example would be in the the Ebola outbreak in West Africa where uh, you know, a, a crucial step was the involvement of anthropologists mm. helping with appropriate ways to dispose of dead bodies. Mm. So here was you know, an outbreak, a massive outbreak of a, a really serious infection. Mm. And it was actually some social scientists that, I mean, it was obviously everyone working together, but it was actually getting this, what you might call an, a, a, an unusual partner in that, response mm. some social scientists not unusual to social scientists they thought it was very obvious why mm. they should be involved but actually it's it's making that those sort of connections a lot easier so mm. we're and, and new zealand is a great place to do it i mean there we're so dependent on you know primary industry and uh, mm. and we have a lot of what we call zoonotic infections infections that rise in humans rising from animals and uh, right you know so it, it makes total sense yeah it's a fascinating area, just coming back to the infectious diseases for a minute, because it's something that we fundamentally fear, isn't it? Because mm. you can't see it. And so you can't, you, you know, like if there's a bus coming down the road, you're not going to step in front of it. But you can't see what is causing these things mm. sometimes. And, you know, you look back in history and the like the Black Death or the plague and, you know, like had such a huge impact. I think it is underlying in our psyche maybe you know, and even, you know, it's now 20 years, but it felt like there was a bunch of movies that came out all about, oh, yes. you know, outbreak and contagion, like yes. contagious diseases. And yeah. and then, um, you know, swine flu or chicken. Mm. What was the chicken one? <laughs> well, <laughs> the, yeah, that's the, right. I mean, the influenzas, we're probably yeah. thinking about linked to, to yeah. poultry. Uh, yes, and um, no, no, absolutely. And, and of course, that's, you know, sadly been exploited with fears of bioterrorism where they mm. often... The actual damage caused can be quite localized, but the profound effect on society because of the fear of the infection is is yeah. profound. And you know, there was a 1994, the mid 90s anyway, uh, an outbreak of the plague, and which still happens, by the way, but mm. in in India that was very localized, but yet you know sparked major concerns. Absolutely, right? you know, yeah. airlines stopped flights to India, and you know, it, it caused big concern. Yeah. So in your work, um, what's the breakthrough that you would love to see <laughs> in terms of infectious diseases? And particularly, yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, vulnerable young people mm. or people in countries that don't have the same healthcare system. Like, what is it that you're working towards that this is what we'd love to have happen? Yes, well, well, we know that improving, you know, uh, living conditions in itself has a huge impact on right. you know in terms of sanitation and on a lot of not all a lot of infectious diseases mm. so there there isn't one part of that answer is is a big big one of a societal one yeah. and that's related to poverty and all the well, you know that that's that's very complex but until you know the more you know we need 
we need we do need more antibiotics and we need you know that that's an issue that's not going to go away mm-hmm. and that's one where we're really struggling we do need better vaccines and vaccine technology is is really coming into its own and and mm-hmm. so there is an area that where there is more opportunity um, mm-hmm. and, and in terms of preventing these infections and we do understand it a, a lot better and it's not every infectious disease that we're able to get vaccines for but mm-hmm. they have they are have proven to be very cost effective and very effective so um, and we probably need other preventive measures that we're probably not really fully understanding but mm. uh, and and treatment measures and particularly for some of the viruses which traditionally we haven't we've had good vaccines for a lot of the viruses but often mm. the treatments have been quite limited but we still see you know we we now see treatments for you know HIV infection I mean that's so different from when I was training you know seeing people mm-hmm. with AIDS in the wards I mean you just don't see that nowadays mm. Iceland is now trying to be the first country to eradicate itself from hepatitis C which was an infection that we mm. And so, you know, there are these sort of advances we need, but, um, you know, there is a underline at all. There are so many infectious diseases, there are mm-hmm. major societal ones. But in terms of prevention, you know, vaccines really, really key. Yeah, so developing better new yeah, ones that, right. that can actually have a big impact. And in, in your world of that infectious diseases, is there someone who really stands out as having made breakthroughs that... <clears throat> that others of us wouldn't have heard about? <laughs> well, you know, it's full of all of the old, you know, the old guys like Pasteur, you know. These right. are actually, that's, you know, I think if people think about them, I mean, they're, they're really thinking about those people who made those really fundamental discoveries. Mm-hmm. They saw something under a microscope and said, well, what's this? Or, you know, they managed to grow something on an egg yeah. plate. And, you know, they're the other So they're probably... So that's like the penicillin sort of exactly what is you know this stuff Fleming here? and penicillin and this those chance observation often came through chance observations that yeah. other people would have not even noticed and yeah. said, well, actually is going on here there's something unusual yeah. it's come from a mold so a lot yeah. of our a lot of our antibiotics or yeah. at least the original types that we had actually were produced by other microorganisms I, I mean see. these are produced for their own defense and mm-hmm. so. Actually, fungi, which are a type of microorganism, so fungus. So this was a like fungus and molds, mm-hmm. um, and it was an observation on a on a on agar plates, which are growing, looking for bacteria. Where uh, there was a mold contamination, and noticing that the bacteria didn't grow around the mold, hmm. so it's producing something. So it's those sorts of observations, and and often these are plates that may have been thrown out, <laughs> been around for a bit, a bit of, probably longer than a they should have been. Too long, right? <laughs> but um, Yes, and that, that's isn't that fascinating though that mm. that the the source of the cure <laughs> is right there in front of you, but you're so focused on you know what you think is the is the solution mm. that you miss it. I think there's a lot of ap- application in many parts of life there. No, oh, totally, <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, David, if people are interested in finding out more about what you're involved in, and also just about the Otago Medical School and things. Mm. Where can they go to find out more? Like, is there a website or certainly yes, yes. Yeah. We're we're pretty easy to find yeah. on on and um, on, on the web. Absolutely yeah. great. Um, well, what we'll do is in the show notes we can put links to things. So right. if there's anything that we've talked about that we could put, even back to Nepal, you know, and sure. some of the work that's going on there. Um, so if people are listening, they can just scroll down and click, and then 
get to find out more. Um, yeah. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great oh, to have you. I've really enjoyed hearing about, you know, this is why I love this show, because I can hear about the person's childhood and, you know, learning about your parents and the inf- impact they had and, and sort of what's shaped you through your through your career and, you know, the importance mm-hmm. that Nepal had to play and then what that's led into and what you're doing today. So, um, yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. I do hope you enjoyed that interview with David. I know for me there were several things that stood out, and I really appreciated the perspective that he brought to a topic that I didn't know that much about, which was infectious diseases. But as well as that, hearing about his time in Nepal and how that had clearly shaped everything that came after in his life. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider checking out some of the hundred other episodes, as well as the Facebook page, and there's a webpage, theseeds.nz. So you might want to check out those things as well. Until next time.